For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to introduce the third edition of the Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion. This latest version offers enhanced images with immersive audio content for each section, making it an unparalleled educational resource. We've expanded our content with new chapters covering topics like MIS, oncology, OBGYN, urology, and more. You can find the book in both print and ebook formats on Amazon. Get ready to elevate your knowledge and achieve top Absite scores with the all-new Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion an indispensable partner on your path to surgical excellence. Good luck on the upcoming AppSite exam and dominate the day. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Knife. I am one of your hosts, Nina Clark. I'm here with Jess Millar and John Williams from Behind the Knife, and we have two guests for our episode today. The first is Michael Inglesby from University of Michigan. He's a professor of surgery where he works within the section of transplant surgery. He's also the director of the University of Michigan Medical School third and fourth year curricula and leads the academic surgeon development program within the Department of Surgery at U of M. He is also a funded researcher and the director of several initiatives to improve the quality and efficiency of surgical care. We are also joined by Dr. Erica Biscard, who is faculty at the University of Washington, where she serves as an assistant professor in the division of trauma, burn surgery, and critical care. Prior to joining faculty, she completed her Surgical Critical Care Fellowship at Harborview and her general surgery residency training at UT Southwestern. She currently serves as the site director for medical student third-year clerkships and the fourth-year TICU sub-internship at Harborview. She also serves as the medical student career counselor for four-year medical students and the assistant program director for the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship at Harborview. Her research is focused on surgical simulation and team dynamics within surgical teams. So welcome, you guys, to the podcast. Uh, we are very excited to be having you today. Thanks for having us. Here. All right. Well, I'll get things going. So this first episode, we're going to be talking about mentorship, specifically as it relates to our medical students. I remember as a medical student, everyone was like, you need to find a mentor. And I was like, that sounds great. And it sounds like I totally should have one, but I have no idea how to go about it. So Dr. Inglesby and Dr. Biscard, can you talk about what is mentorship and why students should have mentorship? throughout their their time in medical school? Sure. So mentorship is really a relationship between somebody more experienced in your field, your area, whatever it may be, who can be sort of a guiding force and a sounding board to help you figure out what you want to do and help direct your efforts to be most successful in your area. And really to be somebody who you can confide in and try and bounce ideas off of and help you figure out your sort of goals and objectives of what you're really trying to accomplish. 
Yeah, I don't have much to add. It's a great answer. I think as a student, you once you decide kind of what you're going to do for a living, your goal really should be to sound like a mature professional in that field, which requires essentially that you immerse yourself with people in that field. So if you decide you want to be a cardiac surgeon, you need to hang out with cardiac surgeons. So I, I encourage students to keep showing up around mentors as much as possible, particularly when they start to hone down on areas of interest and expertise. I love that. I, I feel like half of succeeding in medical school is like learning how to talk the talk. And I very much learned that from watching whoever I was with, whether that be a resident or a faculty mentor. I've heard a lot about the difference between mentorship and then this new term I feel like in the last few years has popped up of sponsorship. And I, I feel like that can be confusing to figure out the difference between the two. Do you guys have any thoughts on kind of what the distinction is between those two things? Yeah. So I also learned about sponsorship kind of when I was going from residency into fellowship. And I think of a mentor as sort of a guiding light for you and somebody who you can learn to talk the talk from and sort of to model yourself after. Whereas a sponsor, while often in similar roles, is somebody who's like your cheerleader, who's somebody who will take you around and show you off and be like, this is the person that you want. This is why she's awesome. You should take her. And they're both very important, but I think there's that important distinction of one is for you to model after and one is to really lift you up and sort of put you out there because it's super intimidating when you're especially a student or a junior resident trying to get out and be like, pick me. It's a horrible thing to try and figure out on your own. So sponsors are people who are supposed to do that for you and kind of lift you up and elevate you in the proper spaces. Yeah. And I tell students that you need to have like a list of five people. And they all have to have a different phenotype is like a University of Michigan word, but that's a good word. And you know, m mentors can, I think, help you be productive, which is kind of what you need. Like I'm senior faculty, I'm no longer a very good mentor, but I'm a good sponsor. So I can pay for things. I can find other mentors for people who can help you be productive and introduce you to, to stakeholders. So you, you kind of need a list of five people and they all have slightly different roles. They, and you balance that between mentors, sponsors, and then it's good to have a rainmaker, somebody who just can kind of toss out research ideas that are always going to be successful. For sure. I think that's super helpful. And I think it's definitely an important distinction to make between somebody that serves more of a mentor role versus sponsor role. And obviously there's a lot of different types of mentors depending on who they are, what kind of interests they share with you, where they kind of are in their career pathway. So since we've kind of identified that, what do you think are some central elements of what a good mentor to mentee relationship should look like at the med student level? So I think having a mentor-mentee relationship that works really well is sort of mentee-driven, which is something that was a concept that I didn't fully understand. I was like, oh yeah, I mentor and he'll tell me what to do. But really having the mentee do some self-reflection and figure out these are the things that I think are important. Obviously at the student level, it's a little bit different because they don't know what's important yet and they're trying to figure it out. So a little bit more guidance. I think having a mentor that's approachable for a medical student, especially, it can be intimidating going to senior faculty and being like, can you help me do this thing? So sort of open door somebody who's approachable and somebody who's the relationship that has a good understanding of what the goals that they're trying to accomplish are. Like we've kind of said, there's a lot of different versions of mentorship and a lot of different mentor-mentee relationships, whether it be research, clinical, whatever it is. So making sure you have two aligned people who are working towards a similar goal. Yeah. And, and I, it's a great answer, Erica. I don't have much to add. I, I 
I've often thought about this concept of like professional kind of connection or intimacy. It's like there's some people you connect with and other people you just don't. And when you do find individuals that that you just kind of naturally connect with, then that's, I think, a great opportunity. Um, I think that it's harder when kind of the mentors aren't necessarily don't look or haven't don't have a common lived experience as you do as a student. Uh, but I think really good mentors can flex into any of those spaces and really be able to be approachable and connect with students. And I, I think one kind of the secret sauces of, of, of a, as a student of getting good mentorship is most of your good mentors are probably going to be residents. Like they're just so much closer. They can give you so much more specific advice on how to get through next year. And so mentors don't have to be the kind of department chair. I think most of your portfolio of mentors probably should be people just a relatively small number of pay grades ahead of you. And they can also coach you and help you how to engage with the more senior people. Yeah, I want to expand on that for just a sec. You mentioned this idea of having a team of five people. I'm curious what you think the ideal kind of complement of people would be for a student who's coming up in, you know, maybe a third or, or early fourth year student interested in surgery. Who kind of makes up that ideal mentorship structure and team, so to speak? Yeah, I think well, one is you have to write it down. Two is you have to be very disciplined as a student. So what does that mean? You need to meet with one of those people about every two weeks. And good educators are going to say yes if you reach out to them and say, hey, hey, Jessica, can I, I want to be a cardiac surgeon. Can, can I get some advice? Like if you put in the subject of an email, advice, like everyone wants to give advice, right? Like you're going to let me talk about me? Great. So I, I usually from a process perspective, I encourage students to have a list of about five people and to, to check, essentially just make an appointment with one of them every two weeks. So that means about every two months you're cycling through this group. And those mentors should include one or two folks who are going to facilitate real research productivity. As a student, it probably just needs to be one person who can really kind of like, this is the abstract, this is the paper, and they need to be responsive humans. You send them the thing, they give you feedback immediately. One or two folks who are just going to say yes and be like, be supportive. Ideally, they would, you'd have a real, those are frequently, in my opinion, like residents you meet on the rotation, you really spark a connection with, and you're like, they can just tell that they're going to advocate for you. And I think one of the things that's often missed by students having done kind of all the jobs and education within our department and the med school is that if you want to match at your home institution, the residents by far have the most influence. Like Jessica and John at the University of Michigan are well-respected residents. And if they work with you as a student, I'm the chief of transplant surgery. The program director doesn't care what I say. Like, I don't, they care a lot about Jessica Moore. like, yeah, Nancy was awesome. And then I think the third level, so you have kind of the mentors who will help you be productive. Then you have these, uh, they call them sponsors, I guess, but they can be residents who you really connect with. You need to have one or two people who can essentially facilitate opportunities and pay for things. So kind of rainmaker type people or people with a lot of resources who can just say, hey, I want to go to Mary College Service next week. And go, oh yeah, we can pay for that. So I think that's kind of a, a reasonable portfolio. It's intimidating for a student to think about that. But if you start with the residents that you meet, then they can give, you know, the residents in your program are going to be good at this because that's how they got to where they are. So let's say now if you're a third and you're a fourth year medical student and you're actively on rotations, it's very easy, like you mentioned, to talk to residents, ask them who's good, who's going to be a good mentor. But if you're maybe a little bit earlier in medical school, say your first or second year, and you're just in that preclinical time, and you don't really know who's going to be a good mentor, who are the big names, how can students go about looking for people to still be mentors even at those earlier stages in med school? 
Yeah, it's a great question. One of my hats is I we have a capstone requirement in our medical school, and the students kind of have to do that, and and they struggle. The junior students struggle until they until you kind of find your professional home. I think it's pretty hard. And candidly, you don't really know who's kind of like full of crap and who's really a high value partner and mentor. I don't know if I have any great advice other than probably ought to be shopping around as much as possible and kind of uh, we call it dating widely as a junior medical student. And then you kind of like hone down as you get more clear about what you want to do for a living. I think it's really hard for first and second year medical students. Uh, I would agree with that. I think one of those places that I've actually sort of received some mentees from is the surgery interest group and the different interest groups around surgery that are available to medical students because there's always surgeons who come and talk or different suture labs, what have you. And that, especially for those more junior people, if it's something that you're interested in at all, maybe you're like, I've never even thought about plastic surgery, but there's an interest group joining that kind of stuff and different campus activities that are available that have some partnership with the larger department that you might be interested in is a great place to start because it is you're like, there's this wall of pictures of these very intimidating looking people. How do I bridge that gap? And that's I've found, I've gotten a couple research medical students through the surgery interest group who just showed up and like, I might be interested in this. And it's an easy way, a low stakes way to try and form those relationships in a little bit more of a, an easier spot, especially early on. Yeah. And I think interest groups especially are a really helpful place to start. I always tell students too, usually the faculty that are volunteering their lunch hour or their time after clinic or whatever it might be are also mentors that like students if they're already volunteering for these opportunities. So they're usually great people to start with. Some things that I also found that helped me in medical school, weirdly enough, the professors that just come and lecture us ask with the same idea. They typically like students. You do have to go to lecture. I do tell students that in order to meet those people, but I found that to be really helpful. Um, and then I also usually will recommend advisors, deans, people that are kind of already around you within the architecture of the medical school. They oftentimes have worked with lots of students who have had good mentors or good experiences with people. And they can oftentimes recommend really great people for whatever it might be that you're interested in. And then I'll just add one little thing. Word on the street is probably the most valid word. So it's good to work with. I think just from the one class ahead of you, that's where the, those interest groups can be helpful. Because if you're a first year medical student, there's some second or third year with similar interests. And they say, oh yeah, I got to work with Dr. Scott because he's the best. It's a good way to kind of get advice. But you got to show up. That's like, like you got to just kind of show up and keep showing up. So let's get into a little bit of how you actually make that like first contact or that first date, so to speak, when you're speed dating through potential mentors. I think Jess, Sean, and I have talked a little bit about how we've approached it in the past, and I'd love to get y'all's thoughts. I think the gist of what I've come away with from talking to both Jess and John about this is send a short first email, really try to nail down a meeting time. I tend to write really wordy emails and really it just is a matter of getting that person in person so that I can talk to them. Face-to-face has been much more effective than writing a really wordy email about all my hopes and dreams for research or whatever I'm trying to get them to mentor me on. I try to send a copy of my CV when I reach out to somebody so that they can see what I've done in the past and what I haven't done in the past. And I think that usually helps these meetings go a little smoother. And really, I have a rule for myself because, again, I tend to be very wordy when I email, but I try to send literally like a single sentence. This is why I'm interested in working with you. And this is is what I'm hoping to get out of this. And just set up a meeting. Jess and John, do you guys want to go through some of your tips? And then we can have our professionals weigh in on good and bad first email contact points. 
Yeah, I agree with Nina. I think short is best, especially when I get emails from students. Uh, I'm usually running between cases and clinic and it's got to be short. I have to be able to kind of see it all on my phone. I usually will recommend students kind of a sample email is to just introduce yourself. Say, hi, my name is Jessica. I'm a first year medical student. And then create some type of common interest. I'm interested in surgery of who you're emailing at the surgery, or I'm interested in basic science research of who you're uh, emailing as a basic science researcher. And then uh, once you've created that connection, whether it be like a similar career goal or research, be like, and I'd love to sit down and talk to you about how I can, you know, what I should be doing in order to become a surgeon or to start research during my medical school time. And I think like a three sentence email like that is just the best way to go about it. For sure. Those are all really, really good, good take home points. The only thing is that I would add in terms of re- recommending reaching out to potential mentors is to really actually do a little bit of due diligence and homework beforehand. I think it's one thing to recognize that this mentor is a surgeon and I'm interested in surgery or this mentor does research and I'm interested in research, but it's the little bit of extra effort to understand what it is that that mentor does or is interested in from a clinical or an academic perspective that really makes you stand out as a potential mentee. And they might just be willing to invest in you a little bit more if you take the time to make it a little bit more of a deeper connection in your interests that match. And then I think Dr. Engelsby kind of alluded to this, but sometimes having those personal connections first is best. So whether that's somebody that you worked with closely on rotation, somebody that you worked with in a discussion group or a lecture during your uh, first uh, preclinical year, those people that you already know a little bit beforehand are the best to reach out to. And then finally, if it's possible, of course, because if you're early on in your med school career, sometimes it's challenging, but if you can bring something to the table for that mentor, that also makes them a little bit more enthusiastic to invest in you. And so whether that's some sort of project that you're mutually interested in or something that you can help them with, especially at the resident level, because I can attest uh, on behalf of all three of the residents on this call, we're pretty busy and we definitely love a little bit of helping hands. And so if you as a medical student are able to bring something to the table in that in terms of uh, something to produce, then that's super helpful too. Dr. Biscard, Dr. Anglesby, have there been things that students have done that have worked super well or things that have not worked mm-hmm. as well when sending you those first, like, hey, I'd love you to, or I'd love to meet with you? I think the stuff y'all already mentioned are great tips and advice, being brief, sending a CV, pointing out that you've done a little bit of homework. Those are all things that work really well. The stuff that works a little bit less well or makes me less engaged is if it's clearly a very generic, hey, this is who I am. This is what I want to do without a lot of follow through. And especially if I if they say, hey, I'd like to set up a meeting and then I reply and they don't reply back. Because that's just, you know, and it's not not asking for a ton. I'm saying, hey, I'm available these days. When would you like to meet or when would you like to shadow? Whatever the request may be, if they don't reply back, and I'm not saying within an hour, but if it's a few days and there's no reply back, it makes me question the real interest in putting forward. And we're all very busy. So making sure that it's a two-way street of they really want to do this if I'm going to engage. And then really just the follow through. So if they volunteer to help with a research project, perhaps making sure that whatever they volunteer to do, they do it, get it done, and have good communication back and forth. Like, hey, I finished this data set. Here it is. What can I do next? That's a really helpful and effective rather than the empty, hey, let me help with this research thing so I can get a line on my CD and then don't have the follow through to actually put in the work. Yeah, Eric, I love those comments. I think if you send me an email, I will reply almost immediately because faculty work on email. I think a lot of students work on other things. <laughs> they check the email like 
like I got a kid, he's one of those kids in college. And I swear to gosh, that woman checks her email once a month. It's like, so, say so you got to freaking answer your email. If someone emails me and I say, sure, then there needs to be quick follow through. I kind of have a rule, like I call it like this one, two, three rule. You get one chance, two chance, or three chances, kind of depending on who you are. One chance for, like, there are times in my career where I would get 10 solicitations a week, if not more, of people who wanted to work on so if you're kind of like someone I don't necessarily know, you just get one chance. And then after that, I don't say, sorry, it's not going to work out. If you're like in, in the program, so to speak. So if you're a surgical resident in the residency in which I work, then kind of get two. Then I would, I assume for a resident or a student who's like going into surgery, like if by the second time, they also must think it's not going to work out. And then people who get three chances are people who are, in my, in my opinion, kind of underrepresented in our field and really need additional support coaching. And I have so many great examples of people that you invest in and they just don't have the communication skills or the savvy or the lived experience where they're kind of sophisticated at some of these professional things. And those people, as a mentor, I'm sure Eric would agree, you just have to invest more time, which is totally fine. They are excellence. They have the same expectations around excellence, but you give them quote, the benefit of the doubt. So you have to be responsive. Answer your freaking email. Like if I answer you back, I'd expect you to respond. That's great. And I think it kind of leads into our next series of questions about what actually happens once you've set up that meeting and you've met with the person and it's like, we're good to go. We got the green light. We're going to be mentor mentee. How do you maintain these relationships over time? How do you describe kind of an, an optimal mentor mentee relationship that you all have had? Again, we've talked a little bit about this on our end and a lot of what we've experienced comes down to kind of setting expectations. I think Dr. Anglesby, you've mentioned having regular meetings but I'm curious what you guys would describe as successful mentee relationships that you've had. Yeah, so I think it depends on what the goal of the mentorship mentee relationship really boils down to. So if it's a research project, like I said, following through and making sure it's kind of like a game of tennis. I give you this thing to work on, you give it back to me, done. I give you another thing to work on, you give it back to me, done. And having a good working relationship that way. So again, being responsive and being really doing the work, I think is a very successful. I'm working with a medical student right now who's helping me with a multi-center trial and she is on it. I know if I email her something, it will get done and I will get it back within a couple of days and it'll be perfect and organized. I know I can trust her. So establishing some of that rapport and that trust. And then on another side, having, if it's more of a, how do I get into surgery, more of a clinical thing. It's maintaining those lines of communication and meeting that I think really has to be driven by the mentee. My calendar is blocked off every day, all day with various things. And I can usually fit meetings in, but I'm not going to go out of my way to add in a meeting. I do plenty of meetings. So having the mentee reach out and be the one to say, hey, I'm here for this time. Are you free any of these times? And sort of keeping that communication open. I have another mentee who I'm helping get into residency and kind of figure out what she wants to do. And she'll text me random things about her rotations that she's on. She's like, I saw a ruptured AAA the other day and got to scrub in and it was the coolest thing. And just things like that where it helps me know that she's engaged and interested and it's not necessarily, hey, can we sit down for an hour long meeting to discuss these points? But it maintains that line of communication to strengthen that relationship. Communication is key. I think once you establish the relationship, some of my most joyous professional memories are some mentee achieving what they want to do and match day. They still like 
be really involved in match day and just going to match day and seeing folks kind of be happy and, and know that you're a very small part of that. That's very fulfilling. But part of that is that they have, have to kind of keep in the loop so you can continue to help and navigate. And I think the other one thing I'll add, I guess, is that good mentors don't care what you do. Like they care about you. So if you decide, I think I want to be a cardiologist halfway through your surgeon mentorship thing, a good mentor, big, awesome. How can I help you do that? Good mentors aren't trying to just kind of craft you into little mini me, so to speak, but they just, they care about you. And if you get a sense that is the nature of the relationship or not, then we should either fire your mentor or kind of really lean in. And I think that kind of leads into our next topic, which is kind of like, what are some of the qualities of a good mentor? And I think that's probably the most important is that they are invested in your success, not their own, and they want to elevate you and whatever your interests and passions are. And so I'm curious to hear other qualities of some mentors that you think, just between talking about it with Nina and Jess, we certainly think that that's an important one, that that mentor is interested in your success and not just theirs. I think there are also some other kind of logistical concepts too, which is that there's like a careful balance and maybe this is accomplished through that having a couple of mentors at different stages, but having mentors that are established and available because sometimes those things have an inverse relationship. Sometimes the most established mentors may be the least available. And also I think one thing that I've encountered in past mentor experiences as a student is that it's usually helpful to have a mentor that is an experienced person in mentoring. Sometimes it's hard to talk to somebody that you might really admire or really see as a role model, but having somebody mentoring you that has mentored others in the past is also sometimes helpful just because having them know how to navigate the system and navigate their relationship is important. So I'm interested to hear if you have any other things that qualify a solid mentor. That's a pretty good list. When I think about my mentors and I have acquired and maintained many mentors from the time I was a medical student, I still talk to a lot of the mentors I had as a student. And it, I think, very much depends on where you are and what you need. What you need from that mentor will change. So when I think about the mentors I had as a medical student, I kind of happened upon them. and They were much more sort of in a more paternalistic, like, this is what you want to do. This is how you do it. And taught me very rudimentary things about how to do a research project. And it was a much more teacher-student relationship. And then I think about my residency mentors, and I had some that I leaned on for emotional support and could just go in their office, and they were very available and very emotionally available to for me with what I was going through. And that person's going to be different for everybody. And some people are better at that than others. And it's really the rapport and the connection you have, sort of the chemistry you have with that mentor. There's some that you feel like you can just open their door and sit down and spill your heart out. And you know they'll sit there and listen. And at the end, a lot of times they're just like, there's not a whole lot else to add. You just have that person you can talk to. And then you have your other mentor that you come to with your research report for the week. And it's very structured. So I think depending on what you need at that stage, finding somebody who matches that and that list is exceptionally long. And being willing to sort of transition that of, I no longer need someone to tell me how to do a research project. I need someone to give me ideas for my own. So the priority of mentorship will shift as you go. And recognizing that, but sort of collecting mentors as you go and tapping into their different expertise as you progress in your school and training. One thing I feel like uh, I want to add is don't underestimate as a student or for that matter, resident, 
how much you bring to the relationship. A good mentor is curious about you. And at some point as a faculty become part of the problem because you're not up to date with the community, whether it be the students or the residents or even the junior faculty, you just become a crotchety old faculty member. So the good faculty remain curious and they're, they learn as much from the mentee as they provide kind of a neat teaching. So I think good mentors who are curious about you and curious about not only just you, but the culture you're living in and the realities, and they're open to that, I think are a good sign. And I'm reflecting on some of the lovely relationships I've had. And I really like Erica's last comment because I'm reflecting on someone who I won't name, but I you know, was a very direct mentor to that person as an undergrad and a medical student. And then they worked with me during their lab time. They went into a field that's not the same field I'm in, but they're a surgeon. And I just Googled it. We wrote, thir- we've written 37 papers together, which means this individual wrote 47 papers and I just proofread them. So they're a prolific an effective person. But the relationship changed to a point once they really decided what they wanted to do. I couldn't give direct mentorship. But case in point, I saw this patient, I saw this person six months ago and I get pictures of the kid and this person's faculty now. And I love this person. Like this is a great person. But I was able to say, you know what? You need to start taking care of yourself. You've been working too hard. You look like crap. You need to lose 40 pounds and you need to start taking care of your own health, taking care of everyone else. And which is kind of what you need or what you want in a long-term mentor who can kind of give you really candid advice because they care about you and they worry about you and they want you to be successful. And that's obviously goes from not something you would do uh, until you know someone for 10 years. But I reflect on how lucky I am to have that person in my life. And that all started with an undergrad. That's incredible. We've heard so much about what sounds like some really lovely and sustained good relationships with mentees and mentors that you both have had over the years. Uh, before we kind of close out, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on what to do when it's clearly not working out. You've met with a few times. It's not really clicking. You're not finding success. You're not finding what you need out of that relationship. What's the optimal way to kind of bow out or get out of one of these kind of situations that students can find themselves in where they've emailed somebody a few times, maybe met with them a few times, but it's really not going anywhere? <laughs> I'll answer this in two parts. I think there's two common scenarios that happen. There's the first where you email and you try and set up a meeting and you feel like as a mentee, you're clawing tooth and nail to get in to make this relationship work and it's just not working. And I think it's okay as the student to just stop pursuing it. I don't think you will offend a person you're trying to reach out to if they are not being responsive and they're not interested. You're not necessarily going to change their mind and that's okay and just call it a failed relationship and that's that is what it is and that's all right the converse side is if you say it's i think the easiest way to equate this is in like a research mentor relationship if you're working in someone's lab and you're profoundly unhappy and you're not clicking and that's very difficult for whatever reason i think you've committed to that person to finish whatever the work is so it's respectful to them to finish that out and just again communication, keep those lines open and just tell them, hey, once I finish this, I think I'm going to direct my efforts to a different group, a different project, a different thing. And you don't necessarily need to explain yourself fully, but just giving them the courtesy of saying, I'll finish this out with you, but I don't think I'll do anything further. We often feel a need to explain ourselves when we're going away. Everyone's had that breakup where you're like, but trying to explain my reasoning to you and it's awkward and you just start talking and you 
go down this rabbit hole. I don't think you need to worry about any of that. I think say, I my interests have differed or have changed. I'm going to pursue this other thing once I finish out our one project or one paper, whatever that thing is. But I think it's important that you finish it, maintain that respect so you're not ending it or you're ghosting them all of a sudden. Don't do that. That's bad. But finish out what you've committed to and then just politely say, I'm not available to help with anything else. If it's a professional development thing, you're just asking their advice, then ghosting is totally fine. You don't like their advice. Break up early, break up often. But if you've committed to work, then it's unprofessional not to close the deal on that work. So yeah, I mean, that makes me angry if someone doesn't kind of do what they said they're going to do. And that can be that can be pretty deleterious to your reputation. Most faculty probably don't care that much, but if it's something that someone's really counting on, and you got you to close the deal, but then break up after you close the deal. That's all super insightful. Thank you both for taking the time to chat with us about this. I think we're kind of reaching the close of the episode, so I'll just run through some of the quick hits from both Dr. Bisgard and Dr. Anglesby. I think we had a really great conversation about some of the qualities of a really good mentor. I think ultimately that mentor should be somebody that's invested in you and your success and is interested in helping you in whatever it is that you want to do or, or want to succeed in and be great. Definitely, it's important to be extremely responsive. If they respond to you, you absolutely owe them a response in a very timely manner. That seems to be a common theme. Discipline is important too. And so if you're working on something with somebody or that person is has some expectations that you two have agreed on, make sure you deliver on those expectations as they've been discussed. And if it's, have it, if it's not working out, then it's worth bringing that up too. Ultimately, I think it's important to recognize that there are a lot of different styles of mentors and a lot of different folks that can help you out at various stages. And so sometimes it's good to have a, a small team of mentors rather than just one person to rule them all. And finally, as you go out and progress throughout your career, both as a medical student, resident, and beyond, your mentoring relationships will also change over time. And so that's important to keep in mind that some mentor relationships are meant to be lifelong mentor relationships are meant to be at certain times in your career and everything few and far between. So that concludes our medical student episode on the ins and outs of mentoring at the medical student level. Thank you, Dr. Anglesby and Dr. Bisgard for taking the time to chat with us. I think everybody really, really enjoy the content. And once again, dominate the day. I've been known to be a closer. Yeah, good. That's what it's all about. Well, we need, we need someone like you because Jess and I suck at it. So. <laughs> be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.